Oh, it often surprises us, though we uh, become more accustomed to it as uh, the longer we live the Christian life, yet it still can amaze us uh, when someone dislikes us because of our faith. It somehow is difficult for us to accept the fact that someone uh, not only may object to our sincerely held beliefs, but they would look down on us and even mistreat us because of them. Certainly, we don't agree with all of the views of other people, and we tell them so as we defend our own, but we don't have any animosity toward them most of the time. If our heart is right with God, it's broken because of their condition. We genuinely try to practice the old adage, hate the sin and yet love the sinner. And we here in this church, I think, do a pretty good job of that. But even that is sometimes objected to. How dare you, they seem to say, call me a sinner Never mind the fact that that's how we refer to ourselves. They just don't like it. They often complain that we're judging them, but aren't they uh, in their very complaint uh, by that statement doing the same thing to us? You, you Christians are so judgmental, they say, somehow not realizing they're condemning us by that statement. The standard is just different. They don't like the fact that we claim to speak on behalf of God. I suppose the real sting is the Holy Spirit sends those words to their heart in convicting power. They're never quite so disturbed when some other group disagrees with them as when it comes to the Christians. Yet we dare not stop telling them the truth. It is only by the truth, and Jesus tells us this is so, it is only by the truth that anyone is set free. Unpleasant or not, the truth is the truth. Uh, we may not like the injection the doctor gives us when we step on a nail. It's unpleasant, but it is good for us. This is what we as Christians are up against. Uh, a culture that's quick to criticize what it doesn't understand and our duty to tell the good news, which often brings us into conflict. So what do we do? How are we to act? What should the world see when they look at a believer who is under persecution? Whether it's the relatively mild things which we experience in our country, or the severe testing of our brothers and sisters across the sea. Well, God word addresses that very topic in the next section of scripture which we uh, look at today in our ongoing study in the book of Romans. So I'd ask you to join me if you would once again in chapter 12 of Romans where we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. And of course uh, Jim will have it on the screen, uh, the text on the screen on either side of me. Now maybe before we begin, uh, a little summary uh, of uh, what our text is about uh, might be helpful. Uh, there's this ditty, a, a short uh, kind of a poem by uh, Edwin Markham that's succinct and memorable, and he wrote this. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle 
but took him in. Yeah, I really love that. It gives us a quick glimpse of what we ought to look like when someone responds to us in a negative way. Our goal is to love that person. Our goal is to bring that person to Christ. That's why we've been left here on this earth, to bring others into the kingdom. It's not really about us, you know. <laughs> I mean, yes, God loves us, and he wants Christ to be perfected in us, to be formed completely in us. So we go through the hard things we go through, but our lot is secure. We belong to God now and forevermore. But those who are on the outside are truly on the outside. And yet Jesus died for them. How, how do we not put their needs before our own. You see, we have the opportunity through the hard times which come our way to show those who are around us the power of God that is in us. That's the point. It's the fact that Christ lives in us that makes us different. Left to ourselves, we have nothing to offer. And the question we're going to ask and answer this morning is this. Because Christ lives in us, what kind of people ought we to be even in the midst of persecution? Now, just as a reminder, we touched on that idea two weeks ago in the previous section in Romans. And there, God's Word was talking in general terms about the kind of people that we're to be as Christians in our relationship with the people in the world around us, those who are outside the faith. Now, not all of those on the outside mistreat us, but some do. And they're mentioned there in a passing sort of way. And the reason it was so brief then is because we're coming back to it in more detail now. Now, what he said back then in verse 14 was this, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And you'll remember from our last time together when we were in the book of Romans that the Christians are to be the kind of people who want, who desire God's blessing on all other people, even those who mistreat us. We are never to want them to be cursed. And so now the text circles back to that idea when in the beginning of verse 17, it tells us that we can't call out any paybacks. We, we read there, do not repay evil for evil. As followers of Christ, we don't ever pay back evil. We don't have to pay it back uh, to the person who has done evil to us, and we shouldn't. Now maybe... Uh, Maybe you'll remember um, when you were kids, there was a kind of a silly game that went around. I don't know if it's still played or not, but it was played when I was younger. And in some places, the game was called Slug Bug, and in other uh, degenerate places, they called it Punch Buggy. But the idea was the same. If, if you saw a specific car, and it had to be the Volkswagen Beetle, you could call out Slug Bug, or a New Jersey Punch Buggy, <laughs> And if you were the first to call it out, then you got to hit your friend. <laughs> I was never quite sure uh, just what they meant by the term hit your friend in Jersey. Uh, I'm not sure what they meant by it. it probably, probably different as a whack-a-mole had a different meaning there too. 
Anyway, the game was a, a, a little more complex than I explained. There were certain codicils or, or additional rules, right, to the game. And one of which was uh, if your friend yelled out slug bug, you could, if you were fast enough, uh, call out paybacks uh, before he hit you. And then you got to hit him back, right? Uh, unless he was bigger than you, of course, then you couldn't. But, but at the time, that seemed reasonable. I don't know. It's a point of interest. You know, my wife has never even played that game. It's kind of sad when you think of it, isn't it? Now, no matter how silly you might think it was, it was just a game. In the world, though, many people live by the rule of paybacks. It's a way of life for them. In the world, that's the way they live. It, it, and it is, um, honestly, isn't it? the most natural reaction in our fallen, sinful world to pay back evil when someone treats us badly. It's almost a reflex, isn't it? But as the people in whom Christ lives, we're not to do that. We are not to pay back evil for evil. And of course, this is harder than you might think. And one of the things which makes it hard is that the evil things which people sometimes do to us are sprung on us without any warning. They come at us and we're not expecting it. So you're walking down the street, you know, pretty much minding your own business and someone yells punch buggy and hits you. And you're likely in that moment to forget all about the rules and hit him right back. Well, we're not supposed to hit back. Even when the car turns out to be a Volvo and not a Volkswagen, we're not supposed to pay anyone back. It's a pretty high bar, don't you think? And without Christ, we would never reach it. And even with him, we fail often enough. But when we do succeed, people notice. You know, because Christ lives in us, we don't ever have to pay back evil, even when we're being mistreated. That is the kind of people God intends us to be. Instead of paybacks, we're to do something that points people in another direction entirely. We're, we're to demonstrate God's goodness to everyone. So the second half of verse 17 says, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. You and I are to show people by our actions and by our reactions what God is like, just how good he really is. Now that Greek verb that's translated here as be careful to do really means taking thought so that we can make provision for what lies ahead. And what we're to provide for is the good which people are going to say. Uh, here, we're not talking about what they think is good. Uh, it, it may sound like that when you read the English, but we know that God is the one who defines what's good. So if I could, I want to paraphrase this. Uh, and, and to do so, I'd say this. Be prepared for what is coming your way so that you may show God's goodness to others. You and I, because we're Christians, because Christ lives in us, are in a unique position of being able to show people what God is like. You know, during the Cold War, the United States set up a, what was known as the Dew Line, or 
distant early warning uh, system, a series of, of radar uh, stations in the Arctic region of Canada and other points. Uh, the purpose was to warn us of approaching attack from the former Soviet Union, uh, giving us really hours of advance notice so we could respond appropriately. Uh, that system's obsolete now, but at one time it was, it was top-of-the-line preparation. But the dew line itself was a result of taking thought of what might come our way, what might lie ahead of us. Because of that possibility of an attack by an enemy, uh, it, it was there in front of us. The United States prepared for it the best way they could. You know, there's an old English, or maybe it's an American proverb, which says, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, meaning if you know what's coming down the pike, you can get ready for it. Now, we don't have any early warning system, uh, but we have been warned. Jesus has told us, and the apostles have said too, that we live in a world that is hostile to our faith, and knowing that, just knowing that can help us at least if we really understand it, if we really think about it, if we accept that that's the way it is and embrace it because God has put us here, we know then that at some point something is going to come our way where we're going to want to hit back. But if we remember that we shouldn't and we don't, we will demonstrate God's goodness to others. But I, but I have to say it again, that strength is not native to us. It's only because Christ lives us, in us that we're able to demonstrate God's goodness even to those who mistreat us. And walking daily with Jesus Christ is absolutely the best preparation for life in general. And it's essential for when we come face to face with our enemy. You know, because Christ lives in us, we don't ever have to pay back evil, even when we're being mistreated. This is the kind of people that God intends us to be. We need to do what we can to be ready for the hard times when they come so that by our actions and our reactions, we can show God's goodness to others. Walking with Christ is the best way to make our way through this world. And you know, because Christ lives in us, we are to be the kind of people who make peace whenever possible. Verse 18 says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We should, if we can, make peace with everyone, even those who mistreat us. Now that Greek word, erenontos, uh, can mean live at peace, but it also can mean make peace. And we know from the Sermon on the Mount that Christians are to be peacemakers. That is, we don't simply try to keep the peace when it exists. We try to make peace when it's absent. I know you've all seen the, uh, the old Wild West movies, right? And, uh, and often there's this town, and it's full of everyday, hardworking people who just want to make a life for themselves and their family, but it's beleaguered by some group of outlaws or some rich and greedy neighbor intent on getting his own way and not caring who he hurts in the process. And so what do they do? They, they call 
a law for a lawman. They send for him, and he comes riding in, and he sets things right. There's no peace to keep, and so he makes it with a gun. And once all the bad guys are dead in the street, he moves on to the next town and the next fight. Now, that might make for a good movie, but we're called to do something harder. If we were in that movie, we would try to make peace with the bad guys that everyone else in the theater wants to dead. We can't give in to that. That wouldn't be right. It doesn't help anything. But we can't kill them either. And we're called to do more than just avoid conflict. We can't move to another town. We have to try to make peace, which means we have to try to help them change their ways. Now, we've already talked about two things which help us help them. We don't indulge in paybacks, and we try to show God's goodness to those around us. Those are good first steps in making peace. Still, in spite of our best efforts, some people just don't want to be friends. And the text acknowledges that. It says, as much as it is in your power, we ought to make peace. Yet there are other figures besides us in that equation. I can remember when our son Bo was a very little boy, uh, when we were still living out in the Midwest, uh, he was trying to be friends with a neighborhood boy, but that other little boy wanted none of it. Instead, he mistreated her son, who was just trying to be kind to him, and there was nothing Bo could do. Sometimes all we can do in those situations is endure their behavior. Can I tell you how my Bo, little Bo, responded to that little boy? He was concerned for him. He, he, uh, he knew what that neighbor boy was doing was wrong and it was sin. And in his young mind, he thought he understood something. And he said to us one night at the dinner table, he said, Dad, that boy is going to go to hell because of his sin. And he wasn't glad about that. It bothered him. And he didn't want it to happen. And we shouldn't either. As Christians, we're to be the kind of people who make peace. And because Jesus Christ lives in us, we don't ever have to pay back evil for evil, even when we're mistreated. We need to do what we can to be ready for the hard times when they come, so that by our actions and reactions, we can show God's goodness to others. But when we've done all of that, and we've done all that we can do, and it still doesn't seem to be working, we need to take care that we don't fall into a trap. We must not fall into the trap of plotting revenge. Instead, we have to trust that our God is at work. Now, this is how the Bible says that in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now first, we ought not to make plans to get even. And this is a little bit different than verse 17. There we were dealing with our natural response of 
payback. It, it's a reaction to the evil that is done to us. Here, what we're dealing with is much more cold-blooded. It's not a reaction. It's not a spur-of-the-moment thing, but a kind of a plot, a scheme to get even and then some. And second, we, we need to trust that God is at work. I mean, we have to leave room for God's wrath. But what does that mean? Are we just waiting for God to get even for us? No, of course not. You see, God's wrath doesn't operate quite the way that ours does. Uh, we act out of emotion. And sometimes our emotion is hot, when, like when we strike right back at someone who does wrong to us. And sometimes it's cold-blooded when we scheme to bring down our enemy. But God suspends his wrath. He delays it to give men and women the opportunity to repent. And see, when we leave room for God's wrath, we're leaving room for God to work in that person's life. See, you need to understand something. The bad guys, and you and I, are not the only ones in the equation. God is there, too, working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. And my little son, Bo, understood it in his young heart that God is real and that God will indeed act. We better never forget that either. Ultimately, um, those who don't repent will fall. They'll fall under the weight of God's wrath. But it is not our doing. Vengeance belongs to God and God alone. Now, in our brokenness, we may just want to get even. God wants to save that very person who hurts us. There's been a person in my life for... Um, He's not a believer for about 30 years now who just doesn't like me. I'm not sure what I did to deserve it, but there it is. I don't blame him too much. Uh, often, I don't like me either. But over the years, um, I've imagined telling him off or putting him in his place. I've imagined showing him how it feels to be on the other end of that stick. You know what that is, don't you? That's revenge. That's what those thoughts are. It's revenge. It's what revenge looks like at the very beginning. And you let it grow. And it becomes even uglier than that. I, I never acted on that. I knew it wasn't what God wanted. And, and I could never quite bring myself to the place of wishing that God would get even for me. I knew even more that that was wrong. It was a number of years ago... Um, I don't really remember how long ago it was, but I realized God had wanted something else from me. So he didn't want my anger. He didn't want my sadness. He didn't want my revenge. He didn't want my advice on how to deal with old so-and-so. He wanted me to pray for him. And I did. Today, that unbeliever is no longer an unbeliever. He is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know that our relationship is any better on his part. It is on mine. But one day I know everything will be okay because our God is great. You see, we're not to 
fall into the trap of plotting revenge. We're to be the kind of people who trust God to be at work, even in the lives of those who mistreat us, even in the lives of our enemies. As Christians, we're to be the kind of people who try to make peace, and prayer is a powerful, powerful peacemaking tool. And because Christ lives in us, we don't ever have to pay back evil for evil, even when we're being mistreated. And we need to be the kind of people who do what we can to be ready for the hard times when they come so our actions and our reactions can show other people what God looks like. And finally, even though, we're not to, uh, even though we may be persecuted because Christ lives on us, we are to be the kind of people... Are you ready for this? <laughs> we're going to be the kind of people who meet the genuine needs of our enemies knowing that such expressions of love can change their heart. Verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Christ lives in us. So let's good do good to our enemies in hopes of changing their heart. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit. I'm going to take a little bit of time to explain this verse. I'm not going to be too long, but I, I, I need to say enough so we understand what the Bible is saying here. First, the feeding of your enemy and giving him drink is a merism. And you'll remember from two weeks ago, that term refers to two different words or thoughts, which are like bookends that contain everything in between. So feeding your hungry enemy and giving uh, him water when he's thirsty is just a poetic way of saying you are going to meet his or her real needs. Not their wants, you understand, but their genuine needs. And if you can, <laughs> I mean, you may not always be able to do that, but you should be willing. And that, I, I think, is clear and easy enough to follow. But what in the world... Does heaping coals on your uh, enemy's, heaping burning coals on your enemy's head mean? That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? So what does it mean? Well, there are three um, interpretations of this verse. We're going to look at each of them briefly. The first one is that by doing good to our enemy, we're increasing his or her punishment on the day of wrath. And people think this because... In the Old Testament, burning coals are often a symbol of God's anger or wrath or punishment. Now, if that interpretation were true, the idea would be that you are to do good to your enemy so that you will really make him or her miserable in the end and on the day of judgment. It becomes the ultimate act of revenge. And that's the problem, isn't it? We're not to seek revenge, period. And, and then, too, the flavor of, of this whole section uh, tells against that. This section of Scripture is permeated with love, with Christian love, that self-sacrificing love uh, which Christ showed us on the cross. And that interpretation just doesn't fit. So most commentators think it has a meaning that's different, that, that's something more positive. And on that positive side, there are two similar thoughts. <laughs> Some think that the burning coals are merely a symbol 
for intense shame and embarrassment that someone ought to feel when they're treated kindly by someone they've mistreated. Now, I'm sure you remember, uh, don't you, uh, some of those days when you were younger when your cheeks and your forehead and your ears turned bright red when you got caught doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, something you were ashamed of? You remember, I do, that burning sensation, that heat of embarrassment. Well, in this interpretation, those are the hot coals. And, and then others on this positive side uh, recognize a link to Egyptian literature where a penitent person would take a bowl of hot coals and put it on his head and walk around, and it was a symbol of their complete change of mind. And in this case, it's brought about by our actions uh, uh, of meeting their needs, even though they may mistreat us. Now, I have to do you, tell you, I did a survey of the Bible, and I found that there are three different uh, uses of the term burning coals. Sometimes it's just a literal statement. The scripture is talking about real coals and a real fire where maybe bread is being baked over them or uh, fish are being roasted or a blacksmith is working. Then there are those times when it did indeed uh, symbolize God's wrath and punishment. But there are those times when they did, um, and the number of instances uh, were equal, uh, where those burning coals symbolized in one way or another God's grace. Uh, they pictured safety or service or intercession or glory or purification. And so I think our acts of kindness as we meet the genuine needs of our enemies is, is kind of like piling up God's grace on that person who mistreats us. Our acts of kindness and meeting their needs are the very best chance they have for a real change of heart. The Voice of the Martyrs, uh, I, I hope you're familiar with it, but it's a really great organization. They minister to those who are on the front lines in places where Christians are severely afflicted for their faith. And they themselves are sometimes on the front line uh, as they minister to the church there. And in one of their communications, they tell a story of a man, uh, we don't know his name, uh, but he was beheaded for his faith. Uh, before he was killed, however, he, um, he said to his enemy, he said, I know that you're going to kill me, but I want to give you this. And it was his Bible. And the man took it, and then he put our brother to death in that gruesome way. Now, we know about this story because the man who took that Bible was so disturbed by that act of kindness that he began reading it, and he became a Christian, a man who hated Christians, who had killed many, had come to the faith that he had once despised. An act of love, a final desperate act of Christian love in order to meet the real need of his enemy. One of our brothers gave that man the best thing that he had. He gave him his Bible. And eternity was altered because of it. That is no small thing. There's a little bit more to say. We don't always see the outcome of those good things that we do. That man certainly didn't know when he gave his enemy his Bible what would happen. But, you know, we're not responsible for that part. We are to do what we are called to do and leave the results in God's hands. 
And the truth is, not everyone will respond to such kindness. That's a sad reality. But when we do what we're called to do, God still triumphs. His work in our lives is real, and he demonstrates his love through us for all to see, and he is glorified in that. And I say it one more time. Because Christ lives in us, we don't ever have to pay back evil, even when we're being mistreated. We need to be the kind of people that are ready for the hard times when they come, so by our actions and reactions, we can show God's goodness to others. As Christians, we're to be the kind of people who always try to make peace. And prayer is a powerful peacemaking tool. We ought not to fall into the trap of plotting revenge. We're to be the kind of people who trust God to be at work, even in the lives of our enemies. And Christ in, a, in living in us enables us to meet the genuine needs of our enemies because such expressions of love are the best chance for a real change of heart. That is what you and I, as followers of Christ, are meant to be. Left to ourselves, it's an impossible task. But we are not alone. Christ lives in us. And with God, all good things are possible. To God be the glory. All glory to God. Could I pray for us, please? Thank you, Lord, for your... Um, word, and uh, we acknowledge this is uh, kind of a tall order for us, but we also um, gladly confess that Jesus uh, lives in us through his spirit, and that you are on our side, and that the equation has been altered because you are at work in our world. Help us to be faithful. Help us to follow you. Help us to be the people that you intend us to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.